This is Criminal Behaviorology, a combination of criminology and behavior analysis to assist the criminal and civil justice systems to improve our society in general, a podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. Hello, and this is your host, Timothy Joseph, and this is Criminal Behaviorology. You know, I really want to, as I've done before, thank the listeners of the podcast who uh, have grown in uh, a couple of recent podcasts and even things that I didn't think you would be interested in. You are interested in, and I've got a lot of good feedback. We've got over a thousand downloads on one particular podcast that was done months ago. So I really appreciate your interest. I know that there are other podcasts out there, like some 650,000 or more. Apparently, it's a more popular method of gaining information than I initially realized. But that's okay. It's part of a source of all success, perhaps, is competition. So I really want to thank you for choosing this podcast to listen to. I'm going to cover an interview I did recently, and it has to do with the exploitation of crime itself. I came across the article, Crime Exploitation, by Paul Kaplan and Daniel Lachance, and that's in a uh, had an online publication in April of 2017. It says, Crime Exploitation is a kind of reality television program that depicts non-actors committing, detecting, prosecuting, and punishing criminal behavior in programs like Cops, To Catch a Predator, and Intervention. A real-life documentary frame creates a sense of versillimitude that intensifies the show's emotionally stimulating qualities and sets it apart from fictional crime stories. Crime exploitation programs create folk knowledge about the causes and consequences of criminal behavior and the purposes and effects of criminal punishment. That folk knowledge, in turn, reflects and reinforces two ideologies that legitimize the ratcheting up of harsh punishment in the late 20th century United States. So Professor Paul Kaplan was kind enough to find the time to be interviewed here on the podcast, and we talked about the dangers of this kind of portrayal, the popularity of these shows, and the possible hidden agenda in the development of such entertainment that formed the, the basis of crime exploitation. And so among the things that we covered was how you can distinguish crime exploitation from other kinds of educational programming on crime, corrections, and addiction. And that includes programs like this podcast. Who are the likely audiences of a crime exploitation program? Uh, what is the addiction industrial complex? Does crime exploitation justify police misconduct or vigilante justice? And how a program like To Catch a Predator, uh, I've watched that show, how that show came to an abrupt end, and how such voyeuristic broadcasts may promote an escape from social responsibilities here in this modern world. And we cover some other areas. So, Please uh, keep listening. Stay tuned. I think it's one of our best interviews. And if you like what you heard, go ahead and go on the podcast, any of the podcast sites, and go ahead and give a review. And you can also email me at criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com, criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com, to inquire about any episode or just to give us your general comments. Thanks again for listening, and let's go ahead and listen now to the interview with Paul Kaplan. Hello, uh, Dr. Kaplan? Yes. Hi, Tim. Uh, hi, how are you? Doing great. How are you? 
I'm doing well. Is the weather nice out there in California? Yeah, it's nice. It's a sunshine tax in San Diego, so oh. we, um, okay. we, uh, we get, when we get hired at a place like San Diego State University, they sell us on the sunshine in months like November, but pay us less. Okay. So it's, it's kind of quality of life. Okay. Yeah, it is certainly beautiful out there, so I, I don't know uh, if it's worth the charge or not, but uh, it's very scenic. So yeah. uh, you uh, perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about uh, your career and your life, and uh, you've, you've had uh, some different interests here. Uh, you can tell us about what, you're, what you've been working on and, and what led you to the interest you have now. Certainly, yeah. So uh, my interest in criminology, I'm a professor of criminology, or actually technically of criminal justice at San Diego State. Mm-hmm. My prior life was working on capital cases, death penalty cases for the defense mm-hmm. in, in a role called mitigation investigator. Okay. So I worked for about six years as a mitigation investigator um, on behalf of people facing um, the death penalty or execution in California. Um, I did that work for several years, which led me to pursue graduate school and a PhD in criminology from the University of California, Irvine. And um, I finished that in 2007, and I've been in San Diego State since then. And over the years, I've published uh, most of my research uh, for the first part of my career was on the, de- the death penalty. And I have a book called Murder Stories, which is about capital punishment and a number of publications in that area. And in the last five years or so, it's sort of moved um, into what we call cultural criminology. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, where I've teamed up with Dr. Daniel LeChance, who is a professor at Emory University. Um, and he and I have been uh, collaborating on this concept we call crime exploitation for a little while. And I do a couple of publications and a book where we're trying to finish up a book which we just signed a contract with Stanford University Press, so we're really excited about that. And so there'll be a book called Crime Exploitation coming out in probably about a year from now. Mm-hmm. On the death penalty, I, I get asked about it once in a while. Do you, do you see it, uh, uh, this might be an old question, but is it seen sure. as a deterrent in uh, the modern literature, or has that even become a, a, a part of the discussion anymore? Good question, and a good way to frame the question. It's an old question um, that isn't really resolved. If you look at the empirical evaluations of the purported deterrent effect of the death penalty, um, there's there's an article that came out about, I think about five years ago, that was in uh, a journal called the Criminology and Public Policy, which is a prominent journal, and it was an evaluation of the empirical research on deterrence and the death penalty, and the the findings of that review uh, were that it is not possible to make a claim, really, about the deterrent effect using sophisticated statistical techniques. The evidence doesn't tell us if there's any appreciable deterrent effect. So I guess the less academic way to put that is that you can't make a claim that it deters mm-hmm. based on the evidence. Mm-hmm. It, of course, it might deter a person. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, you or I, perhaps. I mean, I don't think that's what's stopping me from killing anybody, but it might deter somebody. But as a public policy, as a law, uh, the evidence doesn't support it as a deterrent effect. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah, I think most people, when they're thinking of deterrent, they're, the other criminals, would-be criminals, are going to hear about this death penalty, and then they're going to refrain or be less likely to be criminals in the future because of it. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's commonsensical, but I, in my experience, working on a number of capital cases over the years, um, people who undertake capital murder are not weighing pros and cons and carefully mm-hmm. thinking about what they're doing. So it could deter a very, I don't know, a career criminal bank robber who doesn't want to kill somebody during that action, but it's not going to deter 
highly intoxicated, infuriated right. husband finding his wife um, in an affair or something like a much more typical kind of homicide in America. Mm-hmm. So the, the theory that a punishment of any kind, not just the death penalty, but any punishment sanction that we have on the books in America is going to have a strong deterrent effect has to assume that the people that are thinking about doing crime are, are thinking about it carefully. And mm-hmm. Most people aren't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and over here, in the per- part of the purpose of my podcast is behavior analysis, and if people are saying that something has an effect, I want to see the evidence for that, and and not right. just a you know a, a gut feeling or a speculation about it. So very very good information. Could you tell us uh, what is crime exploitation? Certainly, yeah, crime exploitation it is it's, it's a it's a kind of a catchy term that Chance and I came up with um, after we be, became aware of the started to think about reality TV shows about crime. <laughs> so there's this genre of reality television, which has been around since the 80s. Um, I mean, there have been documentary films about you know crime since, mm-hmm. since film. You know, it, it was invented. But the, the reality TV program featuring crime and punishment really happened and started in the 1980s with a TV show called Cops. Right. And that show still runs still around. This is kind of the, the grandfather of the idea of crime exploitation. But what we mean when we say crime exploitation is a television program that depicts what it claims to be true crime stories. So we're not talking about fiction. We're not talking about uh, like uh, detective procedural TV shows that are scripted. We're talking about reality TV. Mm-hmm. And we call it crime exploitation because programs echo exploitation media, or I should say exploitation films that started in the 30s and through the 40s and the 50s. There was a period in American film prior to the 60s where we had this thing called the exploitation film. Right. And these, there's a great book, uh, of course, I've, I don't have it right in front of me, and I've now forgotten the, the, the author's name, but I could, I could refer it to you if you wanted to include it later, but... Mm-hmm. and you want to catch the bad guys and punish them, 
we're arguing in crime exploitation that some viewers, many viewers perhaps, actually identify with the deviance that's occurring on these shows and find it seductive. Even if that's not at the forefront of their consciousness, they may be nevertheless vicariously identifying with criminals or drug users or experiencing it as a thrill mm-hmm. that isn't just a sort of a punitive stance on, on crime and punishment. I've certainly come across things like that uh, on television and uh, there's a lot on the internet now of these kinds of shows. Yeah. I'm curious what were the limits of where crime exploitation might be because, I mean, if would a historical documentary about a particular crime, do you think that, say, on A&E or something like that, would that qualify as crime exploitation or maybe a podcast? Well, that's a good or, question. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, a podcast, even like this one, maybe. You know, I mean, where where would we say it's this is an educational program if it is kind of under the guise of that type of genre when in reality the crime exploitations are, are more... Uh, to excite and, and affect people emotionally? Yeah, great, great question. Yes, I think that you're, that's hard to answer a little bit, but my belief is that there's a kind of a continuum and that uh-huh. you could, you could um, one of the things we're trying to do in our book is to be more precise about uh, understanding that continuum. But, you know, a documentary is, first of all, that there's a, in film, there are, rules and, and expectations about what a documentary should or should not be. And because A&E or the History Channel or many of these other channel cable channels call something a documentary doesn't necessarily mean it corresponds to what a documentary filmmaker or you know coming out of film school might say is, in fact, a documentary. I think one of the features of crime exploitation is the extent to, or a way to understand it as either more or less exploitive, is the extent to which there is some form of profit taking place. And I don't necessarily mean just capital profit, like money. Uh It could even be cultural capital. If somebody's benefiting from it, you know, the the more that somebody's benefiting, benefiting from the construction and dissemination of the media, the more it's exploitive, probably. Although that's not a hard and fast rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a great film that would count as a documentary that Lachance and I reference in our most recent paper, which talks about a show called Making a Murderer. Mm-hmm. And we kind of try to we kind of take down Making a Murderer a little bit in that paper uh, as a, a, a remaining somewhat exploited despite maintaining a kind of highbrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a good question. You know, I don't know exactly. I think um, 
it, I hate to do this because it's so frustrating, but some, you might say something like, I know it when I see it. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely can tell you if I'm looking at, you know, uh, Gangland or Drugs Incorporated or any of these, mm-hmm. you know, sort of primetime cable shows, they're pretty bad mm-hmm. and exploitive and, and not helping people understand criminal behavior. Mm-hmm. But, you know, making a murderer is pretty good. Pretty yeah. good. Although, yeah. it's still, uh, at the end of the day, I think, it uh-huh. makes a retributive impulse by mm-hmm. focusing on the downfall of the prosecutor mm-hmm. in a way that is a little bit counter to the progressive aesthetic of that show. It, it, so, yeah, I'm not, I, don't have, I don't have a great, like, one-liner answer for that, unfortunately. Right. I mean, it, it could be said that certain shows uh, clearly have an educational goal to them, that they they are trying to say something that we most of the public probably should know and didn't need to know, like maybe a program about gun control or something like that, while others are really just trying to exploit our emotions. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good, that's a nice, tidy way to put it. And mm-hmm. I think the tricky, when, once it starts to get into the academic is when the the ones that really do seem rather clearly educational and helpful sometimes are fall into uh, narrative traps that that aren't obvious, and that's what we that's what we were kind of seeing in making a murder. Mm-hmm. But you're probably right that there are many excellent documentaries about current punishment, or you know, media forms, podcasts, etc. about punishment that are doing a great job of not being exploitive and because of course if you <laughs> the $50,000 question would be you know is, is any discussion of crime and punishment exploitive and that would be pretty limiting to say that and I don't think we're going to try to make that claim mm-hmm. although there I think there's an interesting question about that around the ethics of ever spent just too much time on defining it but i it does bring for me it brings up the question the modern news uh either cable yeah. or or the our local news stories do they engage in crime exploitation they are crime exploitation yeah. i think yeah um i don't think that the, the five o'clock news in most cities in america are able to i think that they're constrained they don't even know it constrained structurally from talking about it in, in a way that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. It's, but that's, that's I, you can't really blame the TV news people so mm-hmm. much for that because of all of the constraints that, that limit them. They have a few seconds or a minute yeah. or something to talk about it. But yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> you know, there's the old, the old line, if it bleeds, it leads. And yeah. It, the, the, there's a certain laziness to media mm-hmm. in media this I don't mean to be hypercritical but mm-hmm. you know to use stock footage of, of, of the blue and red lights of a, of a cop car and then mm-hmm. like a, the yellow tape and there's blood on the ground and things like that and, you know you never even know if that's actually the crime scene that they're talking about it could be stock footage or something like that so I think that it's it's crime exploitation but it's I think less mm-hmm. problematic than the 
Succession, for example, which right. is something we're writing about in our book. It's a very, very popular show about addiction and recovery and this thing they call an intervention when mm-hmm. there's a person called an interventionist who works with the family of somebody abusing substances and they, they try to get this, uh, what they what they call in the program, an addict to go into rehab. Right. And if you watch the show, so I, I've watched a whole bunch of episodes of Intervention and, and my analysis of it is that it's not about recovery at all. It's about <laughs> watching people become intoxicated. That's, that's the, if you watch it, it's an hour long show or it's mm-hmm. about a 45 minute show without commercials and vast majority of those minutes are devoted to scenes of the, the addict uh, intoxicating herself, whatever uh-huh. they're doing, drinking alcohol, injecting heroin, mm-hmm. methamphetamine, whatever. Mm-hmm. So the point I'm making here is simply that the long-form, prime-time version of crime exploitation is more insidious, I think, than the short newscast, because mm-hmm. the short newscasts are short and also yeah. not really... You know, where these shows are doing things like that. Yeah, yeah. They've some certain shows are putting a lot of effort into the exploitive element of. Yeah, crime. and it's, well, I think that the problem for people interested in understanding crime and punishment, America, is that the the the, the, the narrative, right, the story that develops in a show like Intervention or a show like Gangland or a show like Lock Up. Mm-hmm. Dog, the bounty hunter. Right. They 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 can and sometimes have a a sense of I don't know uplifting love and hope and and, mm-hmm. and there's a, a a sense in some of these programs of, of somebody pulling themselves up by them by their bootstrap mm-hmm. bootstraps and restoring themselves and restoring their family or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's all packaged inside of a. a bigger story about on intervention for example what is addiction and intoxication and recovery what do those things mean and a show like that is is part of a, a big national story around what those things mean and the significance of them and at the moment in america there's this thing that people have been calling the opiate crisis but a, a parallel to that has been the development of something which you could call the addiction industrial complex. Hmm. Um, I wish I had thought that phrase up. It's actually not mine, but it's a, a politician in New Jersey who I've forgotten the name of who coined that phrase. But um, there's a there's a whole world of a billion dollar industry of recovery that requires its I mean its raw materials in that industry are people human be- human beings suffering from various maladaptive behaviors uh, that, you know, intoxicated intoxicants and other kinds of harmful behaviors that this entire huge industry needs. So it's a complicated story that is not anywhere close to engage with on a show like Intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's quite a, there's several uh, things I've looked up. Stop the, stop the treatment industrial complex. Uh, I don't see the yeah. name of a. I I had not heard of that before, actually. So that's very interesting. Yeah. Who do you think is the target audience of of a crime exploitation type show? That's an interesting question. I I mean, I think that uh, I wish I had a better answer because I would like to talk to some of the producers and see what they say, and that's something. Uh-huh. Uh huh. What Chance and I have, have have been wanting to do, and we haven't been able to do it yet. And I don't know that much about TV marketing, mm-hmm. um, but I think that uh, if you look at, well, what I would say about that is that there are two kinds of audiences that these shows are targeting. One of them is the uh, middle class mm-hmm. person who wants to learn um, and, and observe illicit behavior safely. In other words, I'm curious about prison, mm-hmm. so I'll watch Lockup. actually 
talking uh, the other day with one of my students who is a formerly incarcerated person, and she's now a master's student here at San Diego State. She was in prison for, I think, six years for multiple bank robberies, okay. and is now kind of this reformed person and getting her master's degree. And she is saying that in, when, they, when she was locked up, that she and her friends in there would, would in the rec room where they had a television, they, they would watch a lot of these kinds of crime exploitation shows. Mm-hmm and understand it from an insider's stance, right? So they're able to kind of decipher it and think about it in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's plenty of people around watching, you know, you might say that, for just again, returning to the example of intervention, you might say that a target audience is, is a mom who wants to understand how a person can recover and gain hope and turn mm-hmm. their lives around. But it also might be interesting for a person who has knowledge of drug use and wants to know more about it or wants to want, if fetishizes watching somebody uh, smoke methamphetamine or inject heroin or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, But they wouldn't tell you that, I, I don't think. I'd, I'd be curious to see if the producers of a yeah. show like Intervention would say, yeah, we want, we want heroin addicts to watch mm-hmm. Intervention while they're shooting up. Mm-hmm. I don't know. From watching some of these kinds of shows that come on, I, I de- I'll call it. I definitely get the impression that women are a target audience. Um, you get the impression of what? That women are the uh, adult women. Oh, well, now the, why do you say that? Well, a lot of it is based on uh, it's like f- fear of uh, it, it's either a uh, a woman like living in terror of, of uh, they really uh, emphasize the music at the point and they go in they go into a lot about her life and what was going on some of the struggles she went through and then it's it's fear for women and children that seem really emphasized in a lot of these right. shows so um, right. uh, and, and sometimes I look and see the commercials that are on there with it and oh this must be the target audience. I uh, not dated very speculative on my part, but I uh, I do suspect that. That's an interesting point. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought much about that. I think you could you could really go down an interesting rabbit hole on mm-hmm. gender with this because in addition to um, there's kind of a flip side to that coin, right? Because on the one hand, a lot of these shows are tapping into fear that I have mostly thought about as kind of middle-class fear, but it may very well be very gendered fear. Mm-hmm. But think, you can think about the gender dynamics in interesting other ways. Like, for example, Lock Up, the TV Lock Up, I mean, the, the TV show Lock Up, has lots and lots of uh, half-naked guys uh-huh. uh, lifting weights uh-huh. and with, you know, muscular, scary-looking dudes. And there's there's many ways that that could be thought about in a, through a lens of gender. Uh-huh. One, it could be fear. It could be kind of um, softcore, uh, tough guy porn. Uh-huh. Another one is that men could be watching it and wondering how they picked her up. How would I handle myself in there? Could uh-huh. I, you know, would I be able to fight with these guys? Whatever. There's lots of different ways that it could be understood. Uh-huh. But I think you're right that there's a, a, a gender angle that that we probably haven't developed nearly enough yet uh-huh. in, in the work. But uh, yeah. Yeah. We, haven't, we haven't done that. Yeah. You, you have written uh, that there's two ideologies in crime exploitation of neoliberalism and law and order punitivism, which I think we've talked about a little bit. If, if uh, neoliberalism is a part of a movement to, say, delegitimize the role of government, right. is that, can, what can you say about that idea? So everything's supposed to be 
them to the cops and then the military. And the military is a different and a separate issue that I don't want to try to get into, but right. I think in terms of the, the, the way that the state in its, in the way that the, the, the law enforcement and you know, prosecution courts, cops, that whole side of the state grows under neoliberalism is partly because it isn't thought of as the state mm-hmm. exactly. Of course it is the state, but it isn't, people are able to see it less as a state apparatus, even though it's, in, it's, it's the most obvious state apparatus. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally the state of California versus, you know, John Doe. Mm-hmm. But I think that lots and lots of people wandering around society dumps in, in their first blush at thinking about the state. They don't think about the cops and the courts and prosecutors and mm-hmm. judges and prisons as the state. And, I, and I, there's a, there's some people who've written about this a little bit. Um, Frank Zimring, a famous criminologist, some years ago made a claim in a, in a book about the death penalty that people don't think of the death penalty as state violence because they perceive it as an action on behalf of crime victims, a kind of a vigilantist uh-huh. action. So if you think of retribution, you know, get the bad guy and hurt him, mm-hmm. neoliberalism has somehow enabled itself to understand that as an important function of the mm-hmm. state that is exempted from the limitations on the state. So if the state is just getting the bad guys and hurting them, it's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, I think that's the way that I would try to summarize our understanding of how neoliberalism mm-hmm. can accommodate the, the large state apparatuses of the police and courts and prisons and things like mm-hmm. that. So, yeah, at one point the article said that these shows undermine a presumption of innocence and bypass legal procedures justified by it. Do you think crime exploitation programs partially justify maybe police misconduct or aggressive police tactics or even vigilante justice? I think that in their in their role as a, a, a cultural narrative, they absolutely do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it becomes a little more tricky when the cops, or you know, to be a little bit more formal, when state apparatuses get mm-hmm. involved or entangled with crime exploitation, it gets a little trickier. So, whereas the story of a show like Lock Up or Gangland or any of those certainly de-emphasizes due process and any of the elements of due process, including presumption of innocence. Mm-hmm. Um, but there have been interesting cases where government apparatuses have resisted crime exploitation. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. there, there have been plenty of, of like police departments that have decided not to participate in TV shows like cops. Mm-hmm. And the most notorious example that, that Lachance and I have, have referenced, um, is in a previous paper, which we wrote about the show To Catch a Predator, mm-hmm. which was another popular one that was around for a long time. And in that case, the, that, that TV show, without revisiting it completely, the essence of it was that they create that the show itself created a sting operation in which it attempted to lure alleged sexual predators mm. to a house after which they would be arrested mm-hmm. by actual law enforcement officers. And so it's very popular and successful and we, we, we deconstruct that show in the paper. I could talk about that another time, but um, uh, eventually that show, in one of their sting operations, they figured out that the alleged predator that they were interacting with, that their, that their uh, decoy was interacting with, was a prosecutor. Oh, okay. So this is somewhere in Texas, a small city in Texas, where their sting operation was, they were undertaking their sting operation, and they figured out that the guy they were trying to lure was himself a prosecutor. Okay. So they, uh, the, the prosecutor eventually stopped interacting with the decoy, and the producers of the show decided to drive over to his house with their van and their cameras and everything, accompanied by actual 
law enforcement officers. So they drove over to this guy's house, and he killed himself. Uh. He committed suicide. That ended the run of that television show, and it also created a an awareness um, among law enforcement officers and prosecutors that, that there's a risk involved with working with these kinds of media companies when you're doing law enforcement. Mm-hmm. It caused a lot of problems for that that jurisdiction in Texas, and they ended up settling with the sister of the prosecutor who killed himself um, out of court, I believe. Uh, but the point isn't really so much that story, which which did end the run of Catch a Predator, by the way, but okay. the point of that story is that, that the, the, the when state officials get kind of intertwined with these programs, that they, they have, in, in some cases, realized this is a bad idea and kind of gotten out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that incident really, that, that put an end to, to Catch a Predator as a program then. It's, uh, it, it came to yeah. kind of a violent end itself. It did, yeah. yeah. We, we, we call it punitive burnout. Uh-huh. Yeah, they took it too far. So if the, yeah. if the rules of that show were that, okay, we're going to lure people through this complicated seduction over the internet and a telephone, and if they don't show up, well, what are we going to do? We're not going to go chase them down. But it was too good to be true that the, the guy that was coming was a prosecutor, mm-hmm. so they they broke their own rules. They violated the logic that mm-hmm. they had themselves constructed, mm-hmm. and it backfired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, also, it written that uh, crime exploitation reinforces uh, neoliberalism to escape psychological pressure of being self-disciplined in a society with a poor and shrunken social safety net. Yeah. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I think that part of the story of crime exploitation, a simple way to put it, is it's a free, free and safe way to at least vicariously experience breaking the iron cage of bureaucratic society. I mean, that's just a really simple way to put it. But if everybody's um, wandering around America feeling frustrated and angst-ridden um, over their boring lives, Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can not I wouldn't say voyeuristically I would say vicariously enjoy a ride on the dark side um, as a way to stimulate part of your you know your your consciousness and your emotions. It's really how it appeals to your kind of thrill emotions mm-hmm. safely, um, and I think that that kind of crime tourism. Part of the story is subtle because it isn't. That's not really what they're selling when you see an advertisement for these shows. I mean, the the, the you can think about it this way: is the all of these shows start off with a warning, right? You know, mm-hmm. graphic uh, content to follow or something. Well, I can't even remember what the warning is anymore. But mm-hmm. that's actually the opposite. They mean the opposite of that. They mean yeah. it's going to be great stuff about to, you know, yeah. don't turn that dial. It's going to yeah. be great. Yeah. And so the, the point of saying that it enables people to kind of feel a sense of freedom um, is it's just a little taste, a kind of a hint of watching people break the rules mm-hmm. and, and getting a vicarious thrill. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any benefits you to see to some of the crime exploitation television programs? or documentaries you highlight in your article? Could the could the public get some kind of useful information from these this kind of entertainment, or is it all pretty much negative? I think they can get some benefit from it. I'll use the mm-hmm. I'll use making a murderer as an example. Because although in our paper about it we we critique it for sure based on the idea that at the end of the day it's still kind of celebrating um, retribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if people don't know much about the phenomenon of mm-hmm. wrongful conviction and they don't know through an interesting case study of how prosecutors and law enforcement officers 
engage in illegal practices or, or very unethical practices, mm-hmm. then it certainly is good for those reasons. And there's a long legacy uh, of very good wrongful conviction documentaries and other mm-hmm. kinds of uh, media around you know flaws in the justice system. And mm-hmm. so when you're, I think that what you have to try to do as a consumer of these shows uh, or podcasts or whatever it may be, is do your best to be a kind of a critical consumer. So mm-hmm. the, the risk of, of uh, in, in, the, in the kind of long game of valuing wrongful conviction stories or sort of looking at those as this beacon of hope to reform the justice system mm-hmm. is that if you reform the system in a whole bunch of smallish ways that help reduce wrongful convictions, you're kind of redefining the bigger picture of the justice system. You're not really critiquing it in a deep way. So look at it this way. So yes, it's good. We don't want people wrongfully convicted. I worked, my first area of interest in graduate school was wrongful conviction. And I wrote a paper about police misconduct in the the LAPD LAPD in the late 90s. I'm well versed in the literature on wrongful conviction. I support it. Mm-hmm. But what I've always thought about it is that all these documentaries that have been hundreds of them uh, and books and papers and movies about the innocent man, the problem with it in the long game or the big narrative is that when there's the prosecutors can say, oh, look, we, we got it right. We found out this guy was innocent. We let him go. And then, then that de-emphasizes all the people who have been, quote, rightfully convicted. Mm-hmm. So you have a couple of million people in prison in America, and then if 100,000 or 200,000 of them are innocent, let's get them all out of prison. But what about the remaining 1.8 million? Mm-hmm. Who, some of them certainly should be incapacitated for some time, but there's lots and lots of them who might have been technically guilty of something, but mm-hmm. probably should not be doing long prison sentences. Mm-hmm. That's a very long-winded answer yeah, to your question, okay. but what I was trying to say here is that there are, of course, excellent forms of media about crime and punishment that can be educational. Mm-hmm. What we hope, if somebody's going to read our papers or our book, would be to try to be kind of a critical consumer of it and, and hopefully have some reflexivity while you're while you're consuming it. Mm-hmm. I, I read a book on... Uh... With that, uh, the Innocence Project. I think it was uh, uh, Attorney uh, Barry Sheck and some other authors. And it, it was, I don't know if anyone's made a documentary of that, but that was really a, a fascinating review. And they had a lot of facts and statistics and uh, all, all that they went through and how DNA technology is developed into such a way that they can really zero in on some of these cases that. Uh, the people were claiming they were innocent and they could look at it and it had it had a lot of uh, it had a lot of educational value but that's not what I see on some of these shows about you know an innocent man was convicted yeah right so there are the I mean Barry Shack and a number of other attorneys and some scholars are the the people that really created what some people call the innocence revolution or the innocence movement in America mm-hmm law and all of those cases are just like unbelievable yeah you know i mean when you read about you hear about them you learn about them they're just incredible and, and they continue to be revealed i mean people are being exonerated regularly mm-hmm. and hundreds of people have have walked out of prison for they were doing life sentences and many for a number of people who were facing execution yeah were innocent so yes it's an incredible story and it's very very important and I don't want to minimize it at all. What I would say, though, what I would say, and this would be an argument that, you know, Barry Sheck might disagree with me on, but mm-hmm. I, what I would argue is that the, the what has happened in this conversation in legal studies is that some have suggested that innocence should be the, the driving concept in mm-hmm. law and, or defense. Mm-hmm. And there's been a counter-argument that has said, no, it's the opposite, in fact, that rights, people's rights, their their due process protections should be the driving mm-hmm. emphasis. Because if you're only focusing on innocence, then there's going to be a lot of people who are technically 
probably guilty somehow, some way, that are going to end up de-emphasized and not, nobody, they're, they're, people aren't going to take their cases as seriously. You'll have fewer defense, people going into defense for the purposes of defending guilty people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a fairly esoteric conversation. I think for the public that's interested in, in crime and punishment, you know, just knowing about wrongful conviction is, is very important. Uh, and I think that, you know, the work of the Innocence Project and Barry Sheck and, and his colleagues is, like, really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess I get the impression when I hear about these these different cases where people were innocent, it, the public would see that and get the impression, well, we really should not have this total trust in just because there's a system and someone's been convicted and they've been through the process that therefore that's the end of it, that they would start to, to look at it with a little more critical eye. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I, that's what has happened. And mm-hmm. I think, well, you know, it's, I'm a little cynical about it just because it seems to me that almost every time there's one of these innocence cases, the reaction is of disbelief. Like, how could this happen? Mm-hmm. You know, and I remember when I, when I first watched Making a Murderer before LaChance and I were going to write about it, I was just sitting there thinking to myself, yeah, this, this has happened. We've heard this story many times. It's not new at all. And I, I've, the reason we ended up writing about that paper, that documentary is because I had a conversation with some people um, at a dinner party. And these were two, it's a couple, and they are um, they're the sister and brother-in-law of a good friend of mine. And they're uh, a kind of a cool, hip couple living in Los Angeles. They work in Mm-hmm. Um, they're sophisticated adults, and they they were just they couldn't believe the story of making a murder. They just were like shocked that mm-hmm. this could happen. That this guy could did eighteen years in prison. And he was innocent. They just were blown away. And, and, and I was having this conversation with them, and I was surprised at how surprised they were mm-hmm. because I, I know I'm in the ecosystem of this, so I'm very aware of it all. Mm-hmm. But they aren't, these were not, these are sophisticated Angelinos who, one of them is in an advertising agency. They're not out of touch with media. So mm-hmm. I was just a little surprised that these seemingly sophisticated, well-read adults in America didn't know that this kind of stuff was happening. Mm-hmm. So you're right, it is educational, and maybe we just need to keep hearing it, but what I find, what causes cynicism sometimes uh, in me is that People are shocked that the cops would plant evidence on somebody. It's a yeah. It's not a new story because it sounds very similar. The years ago, they had the documentary, uh, the Thin Blue Line. I don't know if you've yeah, ever right. seen that. And it was, a, it was yeah. another shocking story. And it, I believe it led to a guy's release. That documentary did. And uh, I remember it being on the news and all that. So it's it's not it's not a new story at all. No, it isn't. And I, you know, there are now like all kinds of academics who've been involved with it for a very long time. There, twenty, thirty years. Um, it's a field of study. I've myself taught classes on wrongful conviction. It's it's a very well known phenomenon, and it's never it nevertheless butts up against the much, much bigger narrative of law enforcement and Blue Lives Matter and the <laughs> power of the prosecutor and these big, this bigger story that is, uh, you know, I don't want to use an academic word, but I would say it's hegemonic in American society. It's very hard to, to deconstruct or interrogate that big story of, of the police, you know, the institution of the police as a force of good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, these are always understood as bad apple counter factuals that never, you know, e- even in cases where there's outrageous misconduct in police departments, the, de- the, in- the local institutions tend to think of it as a couple of bad guys doing bad stuff as opposed to any kind of systemic mm-hmm. or institutional problems that, that enable that to happen. There's plenty of research on that uh, question, but it, in the popular consciousness, it's it's challenging to 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 
interrogate the, the big story of, of the police and the force of good. What's uh like other than what we've already covered? What would you think? Uh, what would you want the public to get out of uh, your work on crime exploit? You and Doctor Lachance's work on crime exploitation. Yeah, thank you for that question. I, I enjoyed the interview very much too. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the idea here is let's be critical consumers, okay? Let's mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think people do that already. You know, they they they're without having to be told by some academics. <laughs> but what I'm hoping people can get out of it is to see the unspoken, covert, and maybe insidious aspects of sh- television shows about crime punishment. Mm-hmm. And that when they, next time, you know, you sit down and you're going to watch Gangland or Drugs Incorporated or mm-hmm. the new one is Live PD. Okay. Well, I interviewed a, a, a true crime writer uh, in the local area, uh, Tobin Book, and, and I asked oh. him why, what, why it gave people this interest in true crime because it's it's such a been such a popular thing for so long. And then he said, "Well, I think it's uh, what he called the gapers block of, of like if there's a car accident a little ways yeah. up, and uh, you'll have a block of of cars because everyone's slowing down to see the the results of the accident." Which of course means yeah. that it's just a something violent or something like that is that basically means it's reinforcing to the people. But yeah, as to why that is so reinforcing, I don't have an answer well, to that. But yeah, I think part of it is that one of the reasons people find it interesting, and I, I hesitate to sort of give answers, but one of the things that I think people find compelling is the, the, the that there's there are consequences. There are like real mm-hmm. life consequences. You're watching lock up and a guy is um, stuffed in a, uh, a cell, you know, that's per, you're, 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 mm-hmm. so you think you're observing real consequences for a human being that are transcendental mm-hmm. to the kind of thing that you're experiencing walking around the world. Mm-hmm. If you see somebody dead in a car accident, those are real life consequences that you're, that are, you're, you're confronted with. And by the way, death is a taboo mm-hmm. and until mm-hmm. modernity and civilization, but mm-hmm. death, human death was was a part of life uh, throughout human societies for most of you know most of the mm-hmm. lives of, of Homo sapiens, and it's only been with the advent of civilization and modernity that it's become a taboo. Mm-hmm. So when we see it, we experience it, we think about it. It's it's getting to understand to have discourse about a taboo topic, mm-hmm. and I think that's. Interesting. Very. That's well yeah. put. Well, Dr. Kaplan, I really appreciate you being on. We've been about an hour now. I appreciate you coming on Great. the podcast. Is uh, what, what are you working on? You mentioned a little bit your upcoming work that you're doing on on this topic. Is what would it be? What's the next step? Well, we have a the book. We're going to finish this book called Crime Solution, and that's going to involve uh, some more, a bit more writing and a lot of uh, editing. And, a manuscript into a, uh, a book for publication. As I said, Stanford University Press, we're really excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a paper I'm working on that happens to be about, it's a kind of a comparison of American executions and mm-hmm. 
and the executions by Islamic uh, jihadi forces that I'm working on. And those are really the two main things that I have going on now. And, yeah. and Danny Lachance, uh, Dr. Lachance, he's got our book, but he's got a couple other irons in the fire that he, he could answer better than I can, so I'm not sure. But basically, so for your listeners, keep your eyes peeled. Um, the book will be out in about a year. Okay. We'll keep an eye out for it. Thank you, Dr. Kaplan. Thanks a lot. This has been Criminal Behaviorology. Check us out on Automatic.com anchor.fm for this podcast as well as our Facebook page and other social media sites.